Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, we're privileged to be hearing from Dr. Scott Porter. He is an orthopedic oncologist practicing in South Carolina. He finished his undergraduate education at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, before going on to attend the Yale University School of Medicine. He completed his residency program in orthopedic surgery at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, and he's currently practicing in South Carolina. Dr. Dr. Porter, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Pleasure. Yeah, the, the pleasure's all, all ours, um, looking over your very impressive career. So many questions and so many things that we can learn from you. Well, I, I appreciate that, and uh, humbly I would submit that I could probably learn more from you than you from me, so uh, <laughs> this should be fun. Well, I get a lot of questions and requests for information about orthopedic surgery. You know, that, that's always been a high-profile field, very competitive field to get into, what led you to apply to or, or to practice in orthopedic surgery? Um, that's an interesting question, and I, I don't have a a specific incident, or uh, I didn't break my leg sliding into second base, <laughs> or tear my ACL three times, or, or any of those things. And um, I think it started when I figured out that I wanted to go to college and did a uh, program at. Uh, this small university called Ohio University, not Ohio State, but Ohio University in uh, Southern Ohio. And there was a program for um, physical therapy and the like, and I did it. And so I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. And then I did another program at Case Western where I was able to shadow a uh, sports medicine doc. And at that point, I thought that I was going to be a team doc and trot onto the field and uh, flowing cape in the background as I reset someone's patella or something and I, I don't know but uh, that that was my that was my my north star for for a while and uh, uh, looked up had some uh, had some blushes along the way and ended up getting into orthopedics and uh, never did take to the sports medicine uh, uh, subspecialty, but nonetheless, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, so what? at what point were you going through these different internships and programs? Were you in college at, the, at that time? Um, the first one was uh, in high school for rising seniors at Memory Serves, I and mean, that was like 1988 or something, but <laughs> the... Uh, the second one was my in between my second and third year of undergrad, I believe. I went back to Ohio and uh, got into one of those kind of programs that helps you with exposure and all of those things and really helps a lot when you don't have parents that are um, college grads and, and, and physicians and so it, it, it lends a lot of insight to the path. And so so I did that. I think that must have been my sophomore year. And then the most 
influential program was the one I did my junior year uh, at Yale and um, got uh, it put into a, the lab of a very uh, impressive individual that I think really helped me to, to get into into Yale and to get into research and it was fantastic. So, so I think I did three in total. Gotcha. So transitioning out of Morehouse College into Yale for medical school, how was that for you? <laughs> it was uh, it was a uh, <laughs> it was a learning curve. You know, I left Morehouse. I had my uh, my T-shirts on rotation the five days of classes between you know Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and uh, the Black Fist, and I was ready for every. Uh, every injustice, I was ready to tilt at every windmill possible. <laughs> so it was a uh, it was a tough first semester when uh, I finally realized that no one cared and everyone was just trying to to get through med school. Yeah, and so uh, that was a a a wonderful wake up call. That's funny in hindsight, but it wasn't funny in foresight. Yeah. So then you completed medical school at, at Yale and was the, how was the match system at that point in time? Uh, that's a, a fantastic question. So I was the first year of ARAS. And so uh, the year before me, everyone applied with paper and typewriters uh, or word processors. The year after me, it was uh, ARAS and um, electronics. So there was a significant difference year to year then, and we didn't have all of the data and all of those kinds of things that govern what we do now. You kind of just flew by the seat of your pants because you couldn't even ask the preceding class what they did because you didn't send applications in the mail anymore. Wow. So it was a very interesting. Uh, it was a very interesting match year, a very interesting time, and uh, nothing like it is uh, now. Well, that's uh, it's super interesting because, as we know, the field of well, medicine, and then specifically orthopedic surgery, has not been the most diverse field in history. Um, so, as a black <laughs> male, <laughs> as a black male navigating this process, what did you, how did you do that? So for me, it was, um, it was interesting. So we, we, everyone knows about the USMLE and about these, uh, famed cutoffs. And, uh, while no program will, uh, I think openly admit it, maybe they do now, but they certainly didn't, um, for a while, there was always word on the street as to what you needed and, uh, and I remember, I forgot, maybe it was 95 when I applied or something like that. But anyways, whatever year it was, I remember the, the cutoff was 220. That was the famed, if you got below a 220, it was hard. If you got above a 220, you could match. And, and I remember opening my, my envelope and I can't remember the exact number, but I think the number was like 221 or something like that. And so um, at that point, I, I thought that I had a good shot at matching, especially since I had uh, the ability to have Yale and, and Morehouse and, and 
research on the on the CV. So I, I thought I had a, a good, a decent shot at matching. Yeah, and the the process back then, you still went to programs to interview, correct? Yeah, we we went to programs. I I remember applying to twenty programs, I think, or something like that. And and my initial list had maybe twelve programs on it. And someone said, "Man, you need to apply to more programs if you're applying to ortho." So I bumped it up to twenty or something. And I didn't have much money back then, and so my parents gave me their car when I started medical school. And I remember coming back, I think it was the Johns Hopkins interview, where my car broke. So I'd gone on uh, five interviews, not including Yale, so Yale was six. So I stopped my interviews at number six, because I didn't have any more money to go on any more interviews. So my rank list had six programs on it. Oh, man. But back then, we didn't apply. It it, it wasn't like it is now. We did not do 90 programs. It was a different time, and I'm blessed to have uh, applied, um, quite honestly, during those times. So how was your experience with residency? Because were you, um, were there duty hour restrictions at that point in time? No, no. I started residency in 98 and, uh, uh, there weren't, I think duty hours came in 04, 03, 04. Mm-hmm. And so, no, there were, uh, there were no duty hour restrictions and it was, it was hard, but, uh, I, I enjoyed residency. I didn't enjoy every rotation, but at the mean, I actually enjoyed residency. I actually enjoyed the absence of uh, duty hour restriction. I'm, I'm one of those weird ones, I guess, and uh, uh, I, had, I had a good time. I had some tough times, but again, at the mean, I had a good time. Gotcha. And then what led you to pursue special, uh, specialization in oncology? So I thought that um, I had chosen wrongly for a subspecialty, and, and um, I was, I remember this, I had uh, come out of the lab, and I did a uh, research as a, as a resident, so I was in a, in, a, in a program that had a research year. So I came out of the lab, and, and I still remember I'm in a, a uh, lecture, morning lecture, and we're talking about bunion surgery. And for all of the aspiring foot and ankle surgeons out there, it's, it's, it's a fantastic sub, subspecialty. I love it to death. But when you're a sleep-deprived 27, 28-year-old, and we're talking about 14 degrees, that number still sticks in my head, um, and we're on x-rays trying to measure something as precise as a degree with something as imprecise as um, a a uh, paper x-ray, I thought I missed the mark. <laughs> and my dad slaved for me to, to go to, to college, worked extra shifts at the plant, you know, that whole, that whole story. And, and I'm sitting here trying to figure out if a toe is straighter at 12 degrees or 11 degrees than at 14 degrees. And I really and truly thought that I missed the mark. And so I um, uh, explored um, other specialties like trauma surgery 
And I even explored going back to Yale and getting a JD degree because I I was pretty dejected about the about the, 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 the mark missing. And then I got uh, my on my tumor rotation that year, and the light just went off. I have a uh, mentor and uh, Dr. Jeff Niesel that is uh, fantastic, one of the best teachers you'll ever meet. And the stuff that he would do, the impact that he would make in people's lives, it was uh, it was uh, career altering for me. And um, at that point, I knew that. I could do something impactful, meaningful daily, and I, I chose uh, to find a way to get into into orthopedic oncology. Wow! So, where did you go for fellowship? Uh, University of Chicago. <laughs> there we go. So, our paths crossed. Uh, it's, I did my anesthesia residency at University of Chicago. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! I know uh, Bill McDade, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it was it's a, it's a special place. I love yeah. I love uh, UFC. So after that, you you, you didn't like the uh, cold weather. You went back to South Carolina. No, I went to Mississippi first. Okay. Um, I spent uh, four years in Mississippi uh, on staff uh, at the university there, uh, the Miracle Center. And then my wife was ready to get back to South Carolina. She went to school down here and and uh, was a nurse down here when we met, and then uh, got married and. And uh, she wanted to get back to South Carolina. So uh, the days were numbered in Mississippi. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so Dr. Porter, tell us about a, a typical day in your life as an orthopedic oncologist. It depends on the day of the week. So, so orthopedic oncology is oftentimes um, low to moderate volume. So we don't do uh, the heavy case lifting or RVU lifting that some of our brothers and sisters do in other subspecialties. Um, ours is much more of an emotional lift. Uh, today was a full day in the office for me, and I saw 17 people. And uh, that was truly a full day. And had one more come, uh, I would have missed this interview. So, yeah. so that's that's where where I like to be, though. And so we, at least I, spend uh, a lot of time with uh, individual patients and uh, enjoy getting to know them and, and their families. And uh, and then uh, the operating day, again, I'm low volume there as well. I operate uh, one day a week, and every now and again, maybe once a month or so, I'll, I'll find time elsewhere and, and uh, do a couple of cases that can't wait. And, um, and so I'm kind of a uh, doc that, um, has outside interests, and so most tumor surgeons will uh, fill their extra day or their extra professional time with another subspecialty, uh, joints is a big one, hmm. um, administrative work. A lot of tumor surgeons are program directors and chairs. Some of us have outside interests, entrepreneurial interests, uh, interest in serving the greater uh, orthopedic community, AOA, uh, AOS, uh, and the board. So, so I'm that third category. I enjoy those kinds of things with my, with my extra time. Yeah. It's quite the robust experience. It can be, it can be. 
Yeah. So for your patients, how do they find you? Are they, where do you typically get referrals from? How do patients know that they have a bone cancer? Generally speaking, it is um, suggested by some other physician and I am a tertiary uh, specialist. So, so generally speaking, um, something leads another individual uh, provider to obtain an image an MRI, something, and then the findings on that uh, prompt referral to me. And that's that way more times than not. And um, my practice is much more soft tissue than it is bone. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. You mentioned how you kind of flesh out the rest of your career with the outside interests. And we're definitely going to talk about um, some of your entrepreneurial um, endeavors. You did spend a fair amount of your your career in medical education as uh, assistant professors, and and you moved on with um, professorship track, but as also the residency program director in South Carolina. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of of uh, resident education and, and, and many facets of it. Um, I think that we have an obligation to, to, to help. I think that we have a lot of individuals that complain about the, um, the numbers, whether it's uh, diversity numbers for gender, diversity numbers for race, whatever the case is. We have a number of individuals that get help. They, they have someone make the phone call. They have someone write the letter. They have someone talk to their friend. And they take all of that experiential knowledge and they go right away to private practice. <laughs> and I have never understood that. It, it, I've never understood that um, a moment of my, of my career. And uh, I've never had an interest in doing that. And so I had uh, phone calls made. I had um, individuals uh, help. I, I, I had a lot of blessings and luck along the way. And I've always believed that we, and this is my belief, and I'm not throwing stones at anyone else, but my belief is that we have an obligation to be that vessel of blessing or that vessel of luck for someone else coming up. And the most impactful way to do that, in my mind, is, uh, is within academic medicine. So, so I stayed in academic medicine my, uh, my entire uh, time, and I'm, what, 16 years out now from fellowship, so... Wow. So it sounds like, yeah, obviously you had a very rewarding career thus far. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I've been blessed. I, I, I it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. So. And as you've stayed in academic medicine and as you've progressed through the ranks, you have come to your current position as the chief of orthopedic oncology. So what additional responsibilities come with that role? There, there really aren't many at all. Um, I, uh, have, uh, responsibilities in terms of just helping the chair with the vision of, of orthopedic oncology. And in the state of South Carolina, we have uh, three medical centers that uh, are large. There are many fantastic medical centers in our state, but there are three large uh, medical centers that are academic, and there are a, a couple of other smaller academic centers. But the bulk of the academics come from our center in the northern part of the state, 
uh, University of South Carolina in the center state and then the Medical University of South Carolina at the coast in Charleston. And one of the biggest projects that I've been working on is trying to unify um, our medical center in the upstate and the medical center in the middle part of the state, University of South Carolina. And that's been a very rewarding, very enjoyable um, uh, endeavor. I'm actually driving back. It's about 90 miles. I'm driving back right now to uh, to Greenville in order to to uh, to go home. And uh, just had a fantastic another fantastic day of, of a full office down there. Um, so for 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 me, I stepped away from the education on the day to day level of uh, of our residents, and I, I enjoy the business. And I enjoy the policy, and I enjoy those kinds of things. And the title of a of a chief of of, of a service line really does help with with those uh, those pursuits. Gotcha. So, Doctor Porter, I saw you know reviewing your your CV and reading up on you, preparing for this interview. You earned a an MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. How have you used that in your career? So um, it's interesting. I, I fully, fully, fully encourage uh, physicians to um, get their MBA, MBA degree. I caution all physicians that in getting the MBA degree, there is possibly going to be as much frustration as there is joy. Hmm. Um, there is a, a bliss to... The ignorance of, of of not having a small bit of, of business knowledge, and sometimes I long for that for that state. <laughs> um, when I was before I got an MBA and really had no interest in in numbers or accounts receivables or accounts payables or or blah 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 blah. Right. So so there is a there is a simplicity to simply getting up cutting out cancer or whatever your subspecialty or specialty is, yeah. and then going home and being a, a mother, a father, a, a, a good citizen of the community. There is a, there is a, a, a joy, a, a beauty in that simplicity. But then there's also a, a beauty in trying to help figure out the morass of, of health care. And, um, and it's, it's a tough, it's a tough task. Uh, but so, so it's helped me a lot with just trying to get a, an understanding and a comfort with where we are and where we're going in healthcare. And then selfishly it's helped for me with my, my love of, of entrepreneurialism and, um, an understanding of, of, how I might be able to get involved with with those kinds of activities. Uh, what I tell individuals is that an MBA is not necessary. You've got orthopedic giants who, who don't have an MBA, and they are some of the smartest business people you will ever see in your life. Hmm. What an MBA does, in my mind, is it gives you street cred. It gives you an ability to go into a room with your chair who may not have an MBA, but has 25 years of street cred, and you can sit down and have a conversation, and they'll spot you eight years, 10 years, because you have an MBA. 
Okay. You go to a meeting at a at a boardroom or in a in a in a committee because your chair puts you on the finance committee, and you may be 38 with an MBA, but they're going to spot you a decade of knowledge because you got the MBA. So that's that's the way that I looked at it. I continue to look at it as far as the hospital goes. Yeah, that's that's a very good good way to look at it, and definitely something I've been thinking about pursuing in the near future. Did the MBA in any way help out, or how did it help out rather with one of your side projects? You are the you are one of the co-founders of Just Cause Scrubs, which is a socially conscious medical apparel company, and the company itself, you know, has some profit sharing with different charities. Um, tell us about this program and how did the MBA kind of help you in this endeavor? Yeah, um, that is the, the latest thing, and, and it's, it's a, a love, it's a, it's a passion of mine, and, and um, uh, it was um, started as a second iteration of, of an idea that uh, I had back in 2010. I started the charity, and the charity I started was called Sarcoma Warriors, and essentially it gave money to patients that were undergoing treatment for cancer. And as you may or may not know, sarcoma treatment oftentimes is the old-fashioned lose-your-hair, throwing-up-repeatedly type of chemo, and you can't hold a job. You can't do very much. And so uh, that's where this charity would come in. We would pay your bills, and we would do stuff, and we would uh, help with medical bills and, and, and lodging bills and travel bills, et cetera. And we would just pay cash for these bills. The problem is that when you have a, a cancer charity like that, um, and it's made up of individuals that are, are patients and loved ones and family members. You know, you get a couple of board members that pass away. You get a couple of key people that pass away. And it really becomes an emotional sink uh, as opposed to the emotional uh, fountain that you were hoping it was going to be. And so um, we, I transitioned that with the help of a buddy of mine into... Uh, this business just cause um, scrubs. The idea was that we could do the same thing in terms of contributing, but as opposed to contributing to individual people, which may not have a market appeal, we could contribute to well-known charities, which should have a market appeal. And so the MBA has been instrumental, vital, for helping to understand, number one, what I don't understand and what I don't know. Uh, number two, where I can look for help. And number three, the language of individuals that do actually help you, because those individuals largely lie in the business sector. So it's been invaluable, absolutely invaluable to me to, uh, to have had the opportunity to get that degree from Kellogg. So how does the Just Cause Scrubs work? How does how do we uh, take advantage of this? So it's very it's very simple, actually. It is uh, the same as any other online vendor of, of, uh, of apparel. Um, we have um, all of the, the large lines that that any uh, um, scrub company or uniform shop would carry. And we sell them at the same price. There's no markup just because of our mission. 
I'm blessed. The people that are investing in this with me are blessed. Uh, we aren't doing this to, to get rich. We're doing this to make a difference. And so we don't mark up the, the, the price and have that difference go to charity. It is the same price that you would pay to shop anywhere else uh, within reason. We don't have the bandwidth um, or the software to keep up with day-to-day changes in prices. And so, and most customers spot us a dollar one way or the other because of that reason. But uh, you go on, you fill up your cart with a whole bunch of stuff, and at checkout, you're presented with a list of charities with whom we have relationships, and you pick one of those charities. And at the end of um, a six-month point in time, we figure out how many clicks a charity has uh, has uh, received based on the, the revenue that has come in. And we look at the, uh, at the net profit of, of that time, and we divide it 50-50 between all of those clicks and our business. And so it is a 50-50 profit share, and the beauty of it is that the customer gets to direct, uh, largely gets to direct where that profit goes. Yeah, that's incredible. It's a, it, it is. It, it is. It is a, it's an amazing feeling. And we're all altruistic at some point. That's why we went into the healthcare. That's why nursing, a nurse went into nursing. So that's why, why my wife went into nursing school. That's why the techs do what they do. That's why our hospital is filled with altruistic people. All we're trying to do is give them an opportunity to double down on that altruism by buying from us an item that they would have had to buy anyway. But with us, you can buy it and feel good about that purchase, feel good about what you're wearing. And it may only be several dollars on the, on the margin. You're, you're talking $5, $7, $10 on the margin. But that's $5, 7 $10 that you otherwise would have just been given to, giving to the for-profit company. Yeah. Same item same price and we make that go a lot farther and we've got jdrf national pediatric cancer foundation shriners um national breast cancer uh foundation um we have got a project hope and autism foundation which is fantastic toby keith foundation there are so many uh ways to contribute that uh, it's just phenomenal. So if your listeners ever want to just get on the bandwagon and, and, and help to support, we will take them. We love groups. Um, we love groups. There's uh, an impact with each individual one of us, but man, there's an impact if we get a group of med students, a group of nursing students, a group of surgeons, a group of internal medicine physicians, a group of of fill in the blank, a hospital system, that's when you really start to make big, big waves in, in society. Yeah, that, that's incredible. So in the three plus years that your organization has been in existence, what, how much have you been able to accomplish? What all have you done? So, well, we've, we've been in existence for three years in terms of proving the concept. And so, so a lot of that has gone into proving the concept. 
And uh, last year was uh, um, a good, complete year for us, and we got up to about 11,000 by December. Wow. And uh, this year we should be able to do significantly more than that. We rely on word of mouth. We rely on these kinds of, uh, of podcasts. Because if you're doing any kind of a startup and anyone knows that a startup will gobble up money in a heartbeat. And so websites, employees, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we are actually extremely proud that we were still able, after it was all said and done, to write checks um, to our uh, charity partners, our Just Causes, throughout all this. And um, we should be on pace to write uh, larger checks this year and um, every year. The hope is to get larger and larger. That's awesome. So let, uh, you know, for our listeners out there, how do they find uh, this organization? How do they get involved? It is very simple. It is just cause scrubs, all one word, uh, just cause scrubs.com. It's as simple as that. Just uh, reach out to us. If you ever wanted the information on it, there's a contact us on that. And we are happy to talk to division leaders, uh, practice leaders, uh, whoever is out there. And if there's a charity that you have, we'd even entertain um, uh, looking at that. If there's a, a way that that charity makes an impact, has a following, and can allow that word to get out of what we're doing, this is a win-win for everyone. So, uh University of Chicago Foundation, we, we'll take it all, man. <laughs> awesome. So, Dr. Porter, how can people find you, uh, learn more about you, and, and follow your career and your progress? Yeah, I, I've got, um, uh, I do uh, podcasts, uh, Google those. I have um, uh, the ability to write blogs on our uh, Just Cause Scrubs blog page that we have and so i would ask that you guys just follow uh follow those i'm on instagram at uh, scott e porter uh dot e dot porter and uh yeah reach out whatever i can do to help even whatever i can do to help you as well that's how this whole world gets better man we all have to help each other that is how it gets better and that is absolutely true and as, as we close on the theme of helping people. We know orthopedic surgery is tough to get into. We've got folks out there interested. What are a couple of tips you would say to medical students that are out there looking to get into the field? Um, I would say that number one, um, your application has a mean value. There are high points and there are low points. And as opposed to simply focusing on one thing, try to present a balance. If you've got low points and you know that there are low points and you don't have the time or the resources to make them high points, make your higher points even higher. It is a mean application. It is called a packet for a reason. Do something with the packet. Um, there's some um, uh, there's some articles that uh, I have had the pleasure of helping to to write that talks about getting into orthopedics and so. Google those uh, those articles. Um, they appeared in the Journal of the American Orthopedic uh, 
American Association of Orthopedic Surgery, JAOS, uh, and find those, take a peek at those. Uh, they were written by some great people, and uh, I've, I've gotten fantastic feedback over the years. But, um, but I would say that, and the last thing is don't give up on the dream. It's a dream, but don't give up on the dream. Dr. Porter, thank you so much for coming and sharing. Uh, I do have to shout out Miss Brienne Leos, who contacted me through social media. She works uh, there in South Carolina at uh, University of South Carolina School of Medicine. And she actually put the two of us in contact. So big shout out to her for making this interview possible. Absolutely. I echo that shout out to Bree. Absolutely. Awesome. Dr. Porter, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen, thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it very much. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley.